one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 510, for the week of Monday, March 25th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. We have an interesting problem tonight. We've got too much to talk about, as we were talking about during pre-show here. An interesting problem to have. I can't wait to go ahead and let everybody in on what we're going to kick around tonight. Indeed, we've got our nine stories set aside, though, and we're ready to deliver them to you once we also welcome Mark Ratterman. And, you know, if there's too much to talk about when you get down to it, that just implies a responsibility for everybody to dig in and find out as much good stuff as you can and let others know about it. That's really kind of what we do. So, hey, Sawyer. (laughs) Hello as well, Mark. And as a lot of people were concerned, there weren't going to be enough stories once the space shuttle stopped flying. Well, we've got plenty to talk about, and let's dig right into it. And let's start off with somewhere that the space shuttle used to visit frequently, and that is the International Space Station. And we've got a couple of stories here from the ISS, a couple of quickies. The first one is about CRS-2, which you might remember is SpaceX's second resupply mission to the International Space Station, which launched back on March 1st of this year. As you might remember, it had a little bit of a problem going up with some thrusters, but that was fixed, and it docked successfully to the International Space Station, and it's just about ready to come home. The original date for return was scheduled to be on Monday, today's recording date in fact, but it was bumped due to weather to Tuesday, so that is Tuesday, March 26th. The Dragon capsule lands in the Pacific Ocean, just south southwest a little bit of Los Angeles, and it should hopefully land in the Pacific Ocean tomorrow at about 12.36 p.m. Eastern Time. Two flights already. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah, Dragon is so far proving itself to be a you know well an, an interesting little beast. I'll say that much. Uh, so far, you know, despite the the and, and I really don't want to classify that as a glitch that occurred uh, uh, right after launch because uh, it had a whole bunch of us scratching our heads for a while. Uh, but uh, uh, Dragon went ahead and uh, successfully rendezvoused and docked with the International Space Station. It's delivered its its cargo. And uh, we'll be returning home. We'll be watching that to make sure that uh, all goes well. The interesting thing about uh, this particular vehicle, again, is it gives us back some down mass, which is what we lost after we we basically cut the cord on on uh, on the space shuttle. So uh, again, uh, they'll be returning a lot of experiments and a lot of other material back home. And, uh, you know, hopefully this, this, uh, the, the splashdown will go well and uh, we'll be able to retrieve everything and everything will be uh, all ship shape. I understand they did have some leakage problems the last time, um, but uh, hopefully those problems have been, uh, have been rectified. I guess tomorrow will be the, uh, the proof of the pudding, if you will, to make sure those problems have been rectified. I've got full confidence that they have because uh, if you recall during the ascent, on CRS one, they had a problem with the engines. A uh, little bit of a you know, little bit of a show there as far as the uh, the pictures were concerned. Uh, this time around, the 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 Merlin nine engine performed wonderfully, and uh, that's been you know so far so good. With fingers are crossed. So 
you know, Godspeed the Dragon, and hopefully that uh, you know we'll, we'll get our you know get the cargo back down and and a lot of experiments to uh, to take a look at and analyze and keep uh, a lot of us busy for uh, for some time as far as what's been going up on up there on uh, on the ISS. Yes, indeed. To give you an idea of a timeline, it is scheduled to be grappled for removal at four or five a.m. Eastern time. It will then be released at 7.06 a.m. They will fire its thrusters at 11.40, again, all times Eastern, for a hopeful splashdown at, as mentioned previously, 12.36 p.m. Eastern time. Now, that's not the only news about the International Space Station, because, as of right now, there's only three members aboard the space station, which means that three more must be coming up sometime soon. And when is that sometime soon, you might ask? Well, that happens to be this Thursday, March 28th, is the scheduled launch of the Soyuz TMA-08M, carrying the rest of the Expedition 35 and 36 crew. The current crew on board the space station is Chris Hadfield, who is currently in command, the first Canadian space agency astronaut to command it, as well as NASA astronaut Tom Marshburn and Russian astronaut Roman Romanenko. Joining them on this capsule will be NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy, as well as a couple of Russian comrades who I'm not going to insult them by trying to pronounce their names. My apologies. (laughs) Pavel and Alexander are their first names, and my apologies on not trying to butcher their last names for you, but that's what the internet is for. And they are scheduled to launch, as mentioned, on the 28th. And their launch is scheduled for 4.43 p.m. Eastern Time from Kazakhstan. But here's the unique thing. Normally, docking is scheduled for approximately two days later. However, for the first time with a manned Soyuz mission, they will be docking the same day. They will be doing a direct ascent to the space station. Docking is scheduled for, on the 28th, 10.32 p.m. Eastern Time, approximately six hours after launch. They've done this before with a couple of progress launches, and again, remember, those are unmanned resupply spacecraft. This is the first time that a manned one will be doing this, and part of that is is to reduce a little bit of the time that they would be stuck crammed together in the very small Soyuz capsule. But at the same time, they have a little less time to adjust to space, and, you know, it's got some pros and cons. What do you think? Yeah, it does, Sawyer. You've got uh, at least you know two days. You've got your got some time to get acclimated to the the space environment and get your space legs, so to speak. But I would think too, it's awfully difficult to do that on board a Soyuz. Um, it's not the most roomiest vehicle in the world. Um, I mean, just just picture. I'm trying to remember what the interior dimensions are, but uh, I mean, they, they have. It's essentially a two module spacecraft. You have a descent stage, which is actually where you're, which is actually really an ascent stage, um, and what they call an orbital module up front. That's the spherical thing that you usually see. Descent stage is sort of the bell-shaped uh, middle part of it, and the instrument module, which is essentially analogous to uh, the Apollo uh, you know, service module, is, is out there in the back. That's also where the the two solar panels are uh, extending outward from. The yeah, I mean, I don't know about about, about you guys, but I, you know, the the Soyuz is kind of um, cozy, uh, shall we say? <laughs> You're basically uh, you know elbow to elbow in there. I mean, everybody's kind of sort of seen the the interior shots of uh, of Soyuz going up. So I don't know between you and the wall. I, I wouldn't want to spend all that kind of time in there. But uh, you know, as Sawyer, you pointed out. Um, you want to give yourself time to get acclimated uh, to the space environment. And when you get to ISS, it's not exactly, you know, I don't know if you want to turn, I guess it's an option, whether you want to turn green on board the Soyuz or whether you want to turn green on board ISS, it's up to you. (laughs) And another thing that I was just reading, uh, and this is from spacepolicyonline.com, is that they brought up the point that which is better? You get to go up, you know, you launch, then you dock two days later, but you're stuck in the cramped Soyuz. But keep in mind, in that time, they remove their launch seats, they get out of their spacesuits, and then they get to hang around the, as not so big as it is, the slightly larger spacecraft for a little bit. Whereas this one, apparently they will be spending the rest of their time still in the seat in their spacesuit. Doesn't sound too comfy, especially saying that they get in a couple hours before launch. Yeah, exactly. And I think, too, that's probably one of the reasons why I want to limit time in there. 
um, again, it, it's really cramped, and, and it's not, probably not the most comfortable environment to be in. Yeah, but consider, too, they've spent a lot of time in the capsule already, you know, with practices and uh, fit checks and things. They've spent time there, and they've spent it in 1G. And, you know, once they're in, in microgravity, they're going to have considerable advantage, I would think, with that alone. And um, I don't know. I, I would say go for it. I mean, part of what they're doing on their uh, rendezvous with that short rendezvous, they're going to do if they took two days to get there. And other than that, what's different? a lot of free time to kill. So I'd say it have an improvement to have some focus and something to look forward to quickly. Yeah, good point, Mark. And another good point, too, that, that I'm thinking, that, that just as you were talking, I mean, the Apollo spacecraft wasn't exactly the most roomiest thing in the world. Um, and Gemini was, was sort of like living inside a Volkswagen Beetle um, from that era. You know, so uh, and and two gentlemen, uh, Frank Borman and Jim Lovell, spent two weeks in that thing. So uh, you know, it, it it I guess it kind of sort of evens out. But uh, I don't know. I think the less time you have in a very cramped quarters, uh, the better off you're going to be. Right, but honestly, I, I've personally, if it were me, you know, at least the Apollo guys on their way to the moon got to you know hang out of their spacesuits for a little bit. This one, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be strapped to the same seat for pretty much eight straight hours. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, well, again, you've, you've got that orbital module over there, and I'm sure after things have kind of settled down and you're in orbit, you could probably shoot up in there. But it's, again, it's not the most roomiest environment in the world. Okay, wait a second. got to interrupt with this. Uh, everybody think, how many occasions have there been where airline flights have not gone quite the way they were supposed to, and you spend several hours sitting on the ground. Been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Had this okay. happen to me two weeks ago. Okay, now we're we're not tough like the astronauts and cosmonauts, but I think they can handle it. It's got to be better than flying out of Newark in a snowstorm, but that's a whole <laughs> other story for my last vacation. I was, I was thinking about that, Sora, when I mentioned it. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> But anyway, we will follow the Dragon landing, and we will follow the Expedition 3536 mission as that continues along as well, and we will wish them the best of luck on their launch. All right, so now we move over to Jean for everybody's favorite word that you probably haven't heard enough of if you live in the United States in the last month. Can you say sequester, boys and girls? I knew you could. Um, well, everybody's saying that, eh, it's not a big deal, you know, and all that, all this money that got pretty much chopped out of the U.S. budget. Uh, it hit, uh, a lot of research folks very, very hard, however, and it did hit NASA kind of hard, uh, so much so that, uh, a memo was placed out, and I'm looking at an article from Universe Today, dated March 22nd of, uh, of last week. Basically saying that uh, because of the sequestration, um, NASA is cutting back on a lot of their, uh, their, their outreach programs and a, lot of, and a heck of a lot on their, uh, on their travel. Um, and uh, the, the cuts include, and I will quote here from the letter that, uh, that uh, Universe Today picked up, programs, events, and workshops – permanent and traveling exhibits, speeches, presentations, and appearances with the exception of technical pre presentations by researchers at scientific and technical symposia, video and, and multimedia products and development, uh, web and social media sites and development, external and internal publications with the exception of scientific and technical information, any other activity whose goal is to reach out to external and internal stakeholders and the public concerning NASA, its programs, and activities. So that is a rather broad stroke as far as what has happened essentially to uh, the NASA public affairs apparatus. Uh, um, there was an article, I guess, over on space.com uh, that also indicated that uh, NASA will not be going to a, uh, a few foreign con conferences, um, meetings that are off limits, according to the article, are the International Astronaut 
Nautical Federation Spring Meeting in Paris, uh, the European Geosciences Union Assembly in 2013 in Vienna on April 7th, and, a, uh, of course, unfortunately, the National Space Symposium, uh, which I believe is held in Colorado, is also off-limits. NASA's space program, you know, NASA activities will not be presented at the National Space Symposium, which is kind of sad. Um, I understand, too, though, that they will still be going to the Goddard, Goddard uh, Symposium, which occurs around the same time. However, the Goddard Symposium is in Maryland, so it's just, you know, hop in the car and go. Um, and I'm sure that NASA will still be appearing at uh, events within a short drive of uh, Washington, D.C., but again, this really, really curtails the outreach program and so on. Now, th- I know there is a NASA social planned for uh, for Alabama. This is in concert with the uh, Great Moon Buggy Race. That NASA social is still going to happen. Uh, but as far as any other further impacts on what you know, this is going to do to you know the social media outreach that NASA's launched, which has been you know kind of successful i'm wondering kind of sort of what the impact is going to be to that also sawyer we kind of talked offline a little bit um about a an appearance by uh john grunsfeld at the uh, northeast astronomy forum coming up later on this month and we were wondering too if if this was going to be effective or if mr grunsfeld or dr grunsfeld was going to be um coming to us uh by the magic of uh of closed circuit television or not so um, what does this all mean? It means that uh, uh, NASA public relation, you know, NASA's social media outreach is, and and a lot of other public affairs stuff is um, is offline. So much so that uh, there is actually a petition out there one more time um, with with the White House basically saying, and this is the title of it. Repeal the sequester cuts on NASA spending program and public outreach and its STEM programs. Close quote. Um, they need about 94,000 signatures by April 21st. So if anybody's kind of sort of interested in, in signing that, by all means, uh, you know, it, it's out there, you know, express your interest. But fingers crossed that, uh, you know, they do get the required, you know, which I think now, Sawyer, correct me, is about 100,000, you know, signatures you need now in order to, to have the White House consider this. Um, so, but uh, again, I, I don't know what this means for the future and what this means for, you know, a, a jewel as far as the uh, uh, the uh, uh, media outreach that uh, the social media outreach that NASA has been doing, and I'm wondering what the effects of that are going to be long term. I should add that there was a reply posted. I'm trying to recall where it was. I believe it was in relation to an NBC News article that was posted about this, that stated that NASA will not be cutting back on its social media. In other words, it won't be cutting back on its Twitter accounts. It won't be cutting back on its NASA socials. It said. It will be cutting back on some of the other things, as you mentioned, like more of the outreach-type things, unless it is mission-related, things like that. But they said that all their their NASA social stuff and their social media stuff is not affected. Well, the social media stuff, I I, I remember speaking with some folks uh, uh, about this, and they're – I don't want to say relatively inexpensive to put on, but they – as far as what the money that goes into them and the bang for the buck you get out of them it has just been amazing the the the, the all, all the uh um you know all the twitter exposure that you get all the facebook exposure that you get and so on so nasa stuff is all over the place on facebook on twitter um you know uh, google plus all of the other uh, social media sites that i can think of uh, I mean, there's a lot of activity out there. So to me, you're, you're, I'm glad to hear that because it's, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot if uh, if you're not, you know, if you're not doing this stuff. Um, I'm still sort of mystified that uh, there won't be a NASA presence at least at, uh, you know, a U.S. space conference like the National Space Symposium in Colorado put on by the, uh, the Space Foundation. Um, but... Um, I'm sure there also won't be a NASA presence at the NSS conference in May. Uh, it, it's kind of 
you know, it, uh, you, you might be able to do things closed circuit, but there's a whole big difference between doing something remotely, as as you know, you you guys can attest to, and actually being there and talking to people one on one. Um, it, it's going to be very, very difficult for NASA to, to overcome all this. And I mean, I know it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. You know, okay, fine, you can't travel hither, thither, and yon, but it is a big deal because you know you 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 can't go over and essentially show the flag at some pretty impressive events as a result of all this. And um, uh, it, it's I don't know, it, it's 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 not good. Um, I'm wondering how long it's going to be, though, before a lot of these sequestration cuts make their way down into um, not just public affairs, but elsewhere in the in the program. And that's where I'm kind of, you know, shuddering a little bit. Uh, will it affect, you know, long range? Will it affect uh, um, commercial crew? It'll, how will it uh, affect the other programs going on? We'll have to watch. Funny you should ask. I'll throw some numbers at you. Go. And I'm not going to go into the whole story on this because it's a little time-consuming and it would take too much uh, backstory to to really fill it out good. But there's an article on Aviation Week by Mark Corot, and he talked about the fact that NASA is pushing, uh, along with the Department of Energy, to restart production of plutonium-238. Plutonium-238 is the source for... The, uh, the radioactive element and the nuclear type um, oh and why, oh the radioisotope they they're they're working on an advanced sterling radioisotope generator ASRG and it requires plutonium two thirty eight to operate it produces heat it's it's not a high radioactivity element but it's something that has to be made the uh, budget proposed for twenty thirteen will cut spending for planetary sciences from one and a half billion to one point one billion in the next few years. And that is part part of the budget uh in that area is what supports this plutonium and the development of these advanced radioisotope generators. And so it's it's real. And I'll tell you my, my first hand um Dealings with sequestration. I work for the Federal Aviation Administration. I'm an electronics technician, and we're going to be furloughed. And we've lost half, half of the fiscal year by the timing of this, and so we have to hit the mark on the budget by the end of the year. So we're going to take cuts for the next six months of the year. Uh, released Friday was the news that 149 air traffic control towers around the country are going to be closed, and I looked around at some of the news that uh, that I saw today, and there's not too many states that aren't touched, and there's some that have quite a few closures. And, you know, what's the impact going to be? And Well, let's hopefully just say that it's going to be inconveniences, that it's going to be delays, and that it's not going to be anything more severe than that. A lot of it will depend on timing. But NASA is probably looking at the same thing. They're going to see travel cut. You know, I'm I'm concerned about part of my career. My entire career has been training. Every so often, something new comes along. You have to get trained on it. You have to get up to speed, and then you have to stay current. And they're talking about shutdowns in our training programs. I'm sorry. That isn't something that you can restart instantly, just like the many discussions we've had on the space program with the loss of the capability and the 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 brain trust that's that's dwindled away from the shuttle program and the end of that, um, so there's going to be effects. Some of it's going to be seen in in short uh, in short time. Some of it's going to be long term. But uh, in fact, this one conference, the 44th annual Lunar and Planetary Conference, yeah. I believe it was in Houston a week or so ago, and John Grunsfeld did not appear. He did appear remotely from Washington because of travel restrictions by NASA. So, I mean, it's a little thing. How much did that save the agency? A thousand dollars? A thousand to two thousand? I don't really know how travel is budgeted and, and covered, but you know, it saves some money. And that's the sort of things that agencies have to look at. Where can we save a nickel? Where can we save a dime? Got to be done. <sighs> Yeah, true, Mark. And and again, the, you you've brought out another angle of uh, 
of all the sequestration stuff, uh, people eventually are going to feel the impact on this, and people eventually are going to start yelling and screaming and wondering, you know, why certain things, why there are holdups. Well, here's why, gang. And it's not just going to be an air travel. You know, it's not. You know, air travel is going to probably going to be the one that 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 it's going to show up the most. But again, it's not just NASA involved. Uh, National Research Foundation, you know, the, the National Science Foundation is also hit pretty bad. A um, few other other you know science related agencies. A lot of basic research is being hit pretty bad as a result of all this. And it's how we're going to go ahead and replace all of this. I don't know. But uh, uh, and NASA is just not going to be the only one that's uh, down and out about it. So we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed and. And see how the, all of this develops, but uh, it ain't pretty. And hopefully, this this will be restored soon. But I I'm not holding my breath. Exactly, we can all hope. And I should just add to cite my sources from earlier. Uh, they were from uh, Space Ref, which originally had the memo from NASA, which specifically stated that they are exempting mission announcement, media events and products, breaking news activities, and responses to media inquiries. Uh, it was also from americaspace.com, which announced the NASA socials part. And there was another update on Universe Today, which was from Bob Jacobs, who's the Deputy Associate Administrator for Communications for NASA, who said that um, they're going to take it a little bit at a time, which basically it sounds like they're not going to cut everything all at once. They're going to look at it and go from there. Yeah, and I'll, I'm just going to cite one more uh, blog post that I had read in preparation for tonight at uh, uh, by uh, Patricia Hines, I believe. Uh, sh- her blog is uh, Patricia Hines, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-H-Y-N-E-S dot com. And uh, she has a very interesting blog post about this whole thing called It Only Takes One, one Meeting. And, you know, this is her idea of uh, trying to solve this problem. So, uh, again, I, I would probably urge folks to take a look at that. All right. Now, on to a little happier news, Mark. Well, I hope everybody heard last week's episode. That's when we talked with Astronaut Abby, and uh, we, had a, we had a great time. We really did. All three of us enjoyed talking with her and hearing firsthand what was coming up. Well, since then, it's been announced. Uh, you've heard our show, hopefully. If not, please go back and take a look for it. But this is all about the hashtag Soyuz Adventure. And it's about not just Abby going to Russia to see a Soyuz launch. I mean, that is going to be a a big thing. It's going to be something that she'll be closer than she ever was to shuttle launches, watching them in uh, the Space Coast of Florida. She's hoping to be, you know, very close and in a VIP uh, position that she'll be in. I would expect that. But this, the big thing, and it's, I'm reading from her webpage. The exciting thing about this opportunity is that I'm going to do my best to share it with all with you and with kids all around the world. That's Abby's post. That's on her on her announcement page. And if you want to read the whole thing, take a look at Astronaut Abby, A-S-T-R-O-N-A-U-T-A-B-B-Y dot com forward slash announcement. And you can read the announcement yourself. And the reason that that I wanted to mention it again here tonight is that, again, it's not just about the launch. It's about what she's going to do afterwards. She's going to be doing uh, chats via Skype. She's going to be doing uh, Google Plus Hangouts. She's going to be talking to kids in classrooms. She's 15 years old, and she wants to inspire other young people. And I think this is something that we're not talking about supporting her because financial contributions are very important to helping out with this. But it's the fact of what's going to happen in the classrooms, in the chats, on the hangouts, where she gets to talk about, these are the people that I got to meet. This is my, my sponsor for this, uh, for this ticket to go see the launch. Not the ticket, but just the opportunity to see the launch. She's going to be chatting with, with Luca Parmitano, the astronaut that will be uh, launched at the end of May, uh, during his stay on the space station. She'll be keeping up with him and asking him questions. She'll be getting questions from from other students and people that she meets. And there's going to be a lot of two-way conversations. So that's why I wanted to mention it tonight. This is about STEM education and outreach. And this is something that is outside of the U.S. budget. This is This is crowdsourcing. This is something that you and I and anybody that, that wants to pitch in can make a difference. 
and on the Rocket Hub page that she has set up for this. And I don't remember really going over this, but since then I've looked at it and I really enjoy it. Fun $5 or more. $5 gets you in the category of in-training. Then there's one a little bit higher that's called the launch pad. One a little bit above that called the rollout. Then there's the rocket fuel. That's the one that got my attention because you'll get a Mars or Bust 2030 Astronaut Abbey Collector patch. You get a patch. Hey, that's cool. And it's a neat-looking patch. I commented on that last week when we talked. There's also another category above that, the liftoff, then propel, then flying, then orbiting, and then docking. How about exploration or, better yet, the universe? So take a look at this stuff, please. And and don't just um, contribute yourself, but spread the word. If you talk to people on Twitter or Facebook or wherever you have contact, face-to-face, online, Pinterest, whatever you can do to promote this. Maybe even call your local TV station and say, hey, I heard about this story online. This 15-year-old student is doing something really phenomenal. You ought to check it out. Spread the word. Help her spread the word. We're going to keep up with her, and I'm looking forward to hearing uh, more and more as they get closer to launch and after the launch, hearing about the trip and what she's got started at that point. Yeah, Mark, last week was quite an honor to have uh, Abby on here, and uh, she had uh, sent me a, a thank you, too, um, through a direct message. And, uh, uh, Mark, you kind of sort of engineered that whole thing. So, uh, again, my, my, my uh, uh, congrats to you for doing that. And, uh, really, really bringing this this whole endeavor to uh, everybody's attention because, again, this is not just going to be about, as you pointed out, one girl uh, going to Baikonur to see a to see a Soyuz launch. I think when she comes home, she's going to be changing a lot of uh, a lot of lives, and maybe they maybe the the young folks that she touches will think of you know think of uh, a STEM career as a result, or who knows, might be. Uh, might be going to Mars themselves one day. So fingers crossed on this whole thing, and, and good luck, Abby. We'll be watching, watching you, and hope, hopefully she'll come back and talk to us after, uh, you know, just before she goes over and uh, when she comes back. So fingers crossed on that, that front, too. I think she will, but we're probably going to have to get in line. I'm glad we got to talk to her uh, first and almost first, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got the first interview, though, but... Regardless, so, you know, again, Abby, if you're listening still, thank you for coming on, and uh, obviously it's something worth supporting, and her website is astronautabby.com, and all the information for her journey is on there. All right, so we've reached round two here on Talking Space, and we are going to start our second trip around the table with me, and uh, if you give me a second, I'm just going to microwave something up here, and uh, it's not dinner, actually. I already had that. We're talking about cosmic microwave background radiation. Sounds kind of fancy, right? Well, we've looked at this in the past with a couple of other spacecrafts, uh, most notably WMAP, which was launched in 2001. But a new one was launched back in 2009, and that was Planck, released by the European Space Agency. And they've got their first information back, and they have released the most in-depth picture of the cosmic background radiation of our universe, which basically allows us to see temperature back to when the universe was about 380,000 years old. Well, now, how old is the universe? Well, this information helped us refine that a little bit more. The universe's age is now refined to 13.82 billion years old, which is slightly older than the original measurement of 13.77 billion from WMAP. On top of that, it turns out there's a little bit less dark matter and dark energy and more regular stuff that we know about, technically, in our universe as well. That number has changed. And on top of that, it changed another very important number in cosmology, which is Hubble's constant, which is used to help figure out how fast the universe is expanding. And that number is now different. It was originally about 69 kilometers per second per megaparsec, which is ridiculously fast and the new number is 67.15 kilometers per second per megaparsec just to put that into perspective is that every million parsecs and keep in mind every parsec is 3.26 light years so basically every 3.2 million light years 
Space expands by over 6,700 meters per second. That's fast. Indeed. And uh, just some of the, some, I, I was sort of a fly on the wall during the, the press conference in there. And I, one of the things that came up was uh, how, uh, how the Planck satellite is essentially what, what the G- Human Genome Project has done for the, uh, for the human body, for the human form. Planck is actually doing for the universe. And that is just an awesome thought. Uh, that's one of one of the one of the presenters had mentioned that, and and sort of uh, took the map that uh, they showed during the presentation of uh, of the of the cosmic background radiation as sort of the, the 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 genome for for the creation of the universe. And that is that is just an an, an awesome prospect. And uh, this is really a stepping stone to really finding out uh, what happened, how the universe was born. I think that one of the uh, presenters said, and, and somebody out there is going to correct me, but um, I think one of the presenters said that they now know pretty much within the first nano, nano, nanosecond of what happened you know, just at the Big Bang. If you can figure out, you know, <laughs> what happened before that, God bless you. But um, it's, it's you know, just, just, just something mind-boggling. We now know, we're now closer to trying to figure out what happened at the moment of creation. Wow. You know, and sort of just, I mean, just, just, just a mind-boggling prospect here. Right, because this also raises some questions now about what happened with the Big Bang, and a little bit actually about was there any physics before the Big Bang, which that could be huge. Oh, boy, yeah. Um, if and- there was something before the Big Bang, I mean, this, this is this defies pretty much our entire thought of the creation of the universe. <laughs> I know, and, and these are, these are I, I, we've really got to track down a cosmologist to come on here and, and talk a little bit more about this, because it's, it's been, I mean, just some of the, 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 pre- the, the ideas that were floating around that press conference were, were just so darn exciting. Um, uh, I mean, this, this, this satellite, which is a, a joint uh, uh, NASA-European uh, Space Agency effort, in fact, the European Space Agency, I believe, actually engineered this thing, um, has just been, you know, so far a, a, a grand success. I believe it was launched in 2009 and has been, been awfully busy and will continue to be awfully busy for some time. And, uh, and, and what we just got was the tantalizing beginnings of uh, of the data that's been coming down, and I'm sure there's stuff out there that that, that we don't know about yet that uh, will be transmitted out sooner. And uh, once once they've got a pretty good handle on on what they're looking at, they'll they'll come back and we'll have another press conference. And you know, uh, again, just mind boggling stuff that, that that's happening here. It's it's, it's re- probably rewriting the books in cosmology. Uh, I should mention real really quick that the uh, satellite is m- named after. Um, Max Planck, who um, was essentially the father of uh, quantum theory, um, what uh, Albert Einstein did for uh, the understanding of, of uh, space-time, uh, Planck did uh, in understanding, you know, atomic and subatomic processes. So I think somewhere, you know, out there, if, if he's if he's if if we're possible, he's smiling and go, yeah, that's good. You know, this is exactly what I was hoping hoping for. So thanks, guys. But um, again, this has been been a mind boggling discovery, and the mind boggling stuff is still going to continue. I think. Yes, indeed, and we'll keep an eye on the results and the implications that they have in the future. And go Plank and go Isa. Alrighty then, so we go from one spacecraft to another, except this is a NASA spacecraft from the 70s that's stirring up some news again. Gene? Yeah, um, well, our, our dear friend Voyager 1, uh, there was a, uh, some news circulating out there last week that Voyager 1 may have finally crossed the boundary of the solar system. Uh, there was an initial report that I, I saw uh, that uh, Space.com broke uh, earlier in the afternoon, uh, indicating that Voyager may have crossed the boundary. It indicated that uh, it detected a sharp change in the intensity of uh, 
fast-moving charged particles called cosmic rays that suggested that it had left the outermost reaches of the heliosphere and marking the edge of the solar system, and Voyager was about ready to cross over. Um, there was another report that was generated as well um, by the American Geophysical Union, which is where this, this initial report was released. And uh, it basically said that uh, 35 years after launch, Voyager 1 has appeared to have traveled beyond the influence of the sun and exited the heliosphere. So, again, these, this report is saying that, indeed, that it looked like Voyager 1 had left the solar system. Well, not so fast there, Sparky. Um, NASA released a, uh, a press release not too long after that, and I'm going to quote directly from the NASA website here. Quote, The Voyager team is aware of reports today that NASA's Voyager 1 has left the solar system, said Edward Stone, Voyager project scientist based at the California Institute of Technology, Pasadena, California. Quote, it is the consensus of the Voyager science team that Voyager 1 has not yet left the solar system or reached inter- interstellar space. Again, they're basically saying, they're, and they're sticking to their guns from the December 2012 announcement that they made, that uh, they, they reported that Voyager 1 is within a new region called the Magnetic Highway, where energetic particles charge dramatically at and change direction of the magnetic field is the last critical indicator of reaching uh, interstellar space. And that change of direction has not yet been observed. So these vehicles are going to be quite useful to us for for some time. And they launched in 1977. I'd say the U.S. taxpayer got their bang for their buck out of of these uh, particular vehicles. But um, again... uh, Voyager 1 has not left the solar system yet. It's probably knocking on the door, but it has not left the solar system yet, and that's the big takeaway from all this. Another boy who cried wolf, or should I say another scientist who cried spacecraft out of solar system. But whatever it is, obviously we'll keep up to date on that, and when it does actually leave the solar system, we'll throw a leaving the solar system party here on Talking Space. Alrighty then, so... Get your James Bond theme music going, because we're heading to Mark for this one. What do you have for us? Yeah, I think this is a uh, story with a lot of questions to be answered and a lot of suspicions. Uh, Recently, NASA, well, let's start with the FBI. The FBI is the one that uh, sort of caused the stir by arresting a a former NASA contractor uh, who was about to board a plane to return to China gentleman's name is Bo Zhang. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. And they arrested him based on a large amount of information technology he may not have been entitled to possess. This has been in the last week or two. Uh, The story I'm uh, quoting from is by Irene Klotz with Reuters. And the result of this is, of course, the investigation over what was he actually taken out of the country and But the result of this is that NASA has shut down access to an online database, which I will confirm shortly here, and also restricting uh, requests from China and some other foreign nationals that are seeking access to NASA's facilities. There's concern about espionage, export control violations, et cetera, et cetera. So there's questions to be answered with this, but the thing that's a concern is that... Uh, NASA has currently 281 foreign nationals, including 192 from China, who have access to NASA facilities. They've had their remote computer access uh, shut off, turned off. And uh, Charlie Bolden was, of course, up at Capitol Hill talking to our legislators about this apparent breach in security. And he said he took responsibility for it, but he said this is about national security, not about NASA security, and he takes it personally. 
Now, the uh, website that was shut down was the National Technical Report Server, and I'm reading from their page, and it says the NASA Technical Report Server will be unavailable for public access while the agency conducts a review of the site's content to ensure that it does not contain technical information that is subject to U.S. export control laws and regulations, and the appropriate reviews were performed. The site will return to service when the review is complete. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause. And that's it. There's no graphics. There's no links. It is just one page with six lines of text, and that's all she wrote. So NASA's quite serious about this, and I just want to make a, just a brief comment that working for the FAA and the criticality of a lot of the FAA systems and the security of our national aviation, uh, national airspace system, is something that we take seriously in, in my agency, but there are things can go wrong, and this is one of those cases where uh, NASA has to be very careful, and they're going to conduct a couple of internal reviews. There's going to be an external investigation, and uh, they want to get to the bottom of it. And I think this is something not just indicative of anything wrong with NASA, because I really don't feel like uh, they're any different than many other federal agencies. There's just a there's a lot of trust in our society, and we don't necessarily expect that. Somebody that uh, is is working and doing a job might be a risk, but this highlights the question that there could be. So, more complications, more uh, more more rough days for for NASA and for their team. And I uh, hope they get everything sorted out. And if there's any loopholes or leaks, I hope they get them plugged up. And if nothing else, to keep us in agreement with our own laws and also with international agreements that we have. Yeah, Mark, one of the things, though, that uh, that really, really had a few uh, feathers ruffled, including, um, or feathers ruffled, excuse me, including that of uh, uh, Representative Frank Wolf from Virginia, uh, essentially, uh, he, he's, he's taking the, the umbrage here because NASA was sort of forbidden to do business with China at all. And uh, even Bolden had to say during a congressional hearing that, quote, I don't deal with China by by direction of this Congress, close quote. And he basically uh, called um, uh, the prohibition uh, the, of uh, you know dealing with China, and I'm quoting here from a, a Space.com article by Clara Moskowitz, uh, dated, I believe, March 20th. Um, the, uh, he called this whole prohibition thing, quote, the elephant in the room, and we're the only agency of the federal government that does not have bilateral relationships with China, well, I would I would kind of think maybe also you know the U.S. Defense Department may also be in that that area too, but um, you know I, again this this goes hand in hand with a lot of what you're saying about trust and so on and and having the the right people in the right places and I think maybe you have to go ahead and and rethink your your security issues, but also who you give trust to what and. Um, I know that that's I mean, but but do you go as far as uh, the military does and and really, really go into like all the polygraph tests and all that stuff? So that brings up that kind of, you know, that kind of uh, (laughs) that kind of trust. And um, do you really have to go that far at NASA? I don't know. I don't think so. But, you know, again, I guess it's just all who do you trust to go ahead and have access to the info? And I think maybe, you know, maybe some wiser heads need to prevail over there. Indeed, it's really just a, it's an interesting situation. And obviously, this is something that we've been keeping an eye on in terms of China relations, especially with ISS. But it's something that we'll continue to keep an eye on for sure. All right. So we have reached the final part of our show, round three. And these stories tend to be a little bit lighter, so let's get things started right away. And this one was something that I had originally read online, but was also suggested to us as a story on our email. And on top of me looking this up, uh, Donald Kalinowski sent us an email saying that you might want to mention this in one of your podcasts. And what is it about? Well, it involves Jeff Bezos. You might know that name because he is the founder of the popular site Amazon. On top of that, he also has a couple of other little projects that he's doing, and one of them is Bezos Expeditions. And what did he do? 
Well, he led a very unique expedition out to the waters off of Florida looking for rocket pieces. Not just any kind of rocket pieces, but specifically for some of the engines that lifted the Saturn V rockets to the moon in the 1960s and early 70s. And he did indeed find and recover at least one of these F-1 engines that were used. Now, they can't tell which mission it's from because that part has been washed away from all of the years under the ocean. But they are planning to bring them back, refurbish them, and display them in museums. And I think it's pretty cool that, you know, spend a couple weeks out at sea and find a space-flown piece of history. Yeah, the um, I mean, I, I'm thinking of uh, Ballard and the Titanic a little bit. I know it's it's not it's not exactly the 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 right analogy because we're, we were dealing with something uh, you know tragic in that instance. In this case, we're dealing with something rather exhilarating, and uh, to to go ahead and bring all that back, I believe uh, I think sort of two engines were found. I mean, it, it just brought all the, those memories back and. And all of the, the the glory that Apollo really really was uh, right on back. I mean, I'm looking at a photograph now, and it's only a partial engine bell, but it knowing what that was from and what that did and and what its job was, um, job well done. I mean, the the Saturn V never failed. Period. It was probably one of the mo- more reliable boosters this this country's ever built, and still the F1 engines that you know, were recovered. Um, the F-1 still represents the most powerful liquid engine that humans have ever created. And sort of an offshoot of the F-1 uh, the, uh, is actually scheduled to possibly uh, power the SLS in the future. Jeff, Jeff Bezos, thanks a lot for finding this stuff. And, and hopefully, uh, uh, you know, who knows, who knows what else we'll find out, out there if they decide to do this again. Be kind of uh, kind of neat to see if we can recover more of more of our uh, spaceflight history out there. And as has been the subject of many of previous stories and some angry astronauts, the engines are, since they are space artifacts, a property of NASA. But Jeff Bezos and his company have found it, and again, they are the ones planning to refurbish it. And then NASA will say where they go from there. Alrighty then, so. Next, it goes to Gene, who has a story that'll light up the Northeast Coast. Sorta, yeah, literally. Um, last Friday, there was a really interesting little event that happened in, in the night sky over here in New Jersey. Uh, but I understand, too, this event was, was visible from, from Florida all the way through, uh, uh, all the way through the New England. Uh, so, uh, again, we had a little bit of a, a visitor uh, come up to us. Uh, and uh, I will go ahead and, and read a little note that a, a listener by the name of uh, Jim Cook had sent to me. I had asked him just simply if he wanted to go ahead and record something, but he, he sent me a note here about his experience and about this, this particular bolide that showed up. It's kind of interesting. We've had a lot of, uh, a lot of things lighting up our sky of late. The main one uh, that came on, in under the Urals, um, last, what was it, just, just last month, just last February, and uh, caused a lot of uh, caused a lot of damage, and uh, caused about a thousand people to go to the hospital. Um, another, uh, uh, we had another event uh, uh, earlier, and now this, uh, and this one was right over here. So that we still have some you know near Earth objects that we we still have to look at. But I'm going to read Jim Cook's uh, email here uh, that he had sent me because I thought it was a really really neat uh, uh, description as far as what had occurred. He says, quote, I was hosting a small star party at uh, my local par- park in Boyds, Maryland, about uh, 25 miles northwest of downtown D.C. There were about nine of us all in all with five telescopes set up. It was twilight, still getting dark, shortly before 8 p.m. We had just finally found comet Pan Stars, which was just barely visible, almost a ghost of a comet. And we were taking, just, just simply talking among ourselves when one of us shouted, Meteor! At that same instant, he said, I, I saw myself you know, facing north, trying to find Polaris when I spotted the fireball just above the north-northeast tree line. About azimuth, 25 degrees, maybe 20 high, descending slowly and moving toward the east. I was struck immediately about how bright it was, even more how green it was and how slowly it was moving. Um, he had 
tweeted me before sending this and said he, it was probably the most slowest moving bolide he'd ever seen. Now, he said his friend was standing right beside him, and he had, had to say, quick, turn around, turn around. And, pointing, and he pointed frantically toward the meteor. Um, he, the, the, his friend finally turned around. It was still going, pulsing brightly, shedding smaller pieces as it moved slowly eastward for another few seconds, giving off one or two more extremely bright flashes before fading from view. So it was very much like a six or seven second pulsing negative eight magnitude iridium flare. But only this one was pure green with occasional pink every so often and even brighter still for a split second. Uh, too bright for him to even estimate, you know, he's thinking maybe a, a negative 12 magnitude before finally fading into fading from view. Uh, the intensity of the color at times reminded them more of flames from the shuttle's SRBs, only instead of yellow and orange, it was more like an intense green blowtorch. He said it was really, really dazzling. He said, I'd seen many gorgeous bolides and fireballs before over the years, but I don't recall ever seeing anything so green and so slow as this one. One observer at the local astronomy e- email list said here that he had watched it for a full 10 seconds now he said basically the um, the american meteor society had a ground track and if you go to the website it's there uh showing the meteor at first uh appearing over northeast pennsylvania and crossing over northern new jersey along a uh, southeasterly path before disappearing over the atlantic some 30 miles south of long island where the path stretching for some 150 or so miles long and that matches very well, he said, for for the nearly north-northeast track that he observed uh, from his location in Maryland. Um, he ends the note, you know, seeing this fireball more than made up for the rather disappointing views they had of Comet Pan Stars. Um, it, early reports said this thing was about the size of a, you know, of a boulder of some sort. Some reports I've seen estimate the thing is about as big as a washing machine. I don't know. You know, I'm trying to find pin exactly uh, which one to 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 go ahead and say, yeah, that's it. But um, I, you know, I'm I'm just gosh darn it disappointed that I missed the darn thing. Um, but um, uh, by this description, I feel like I saw it. So uh, Jim Cook, thanks so so much for uh, for uh, emailing me and uh, sending this along. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yes, indeed. Thank you as well for sending in those letters. And we've got one more that isn't a listener-suggested topic, but it's just a fun one to end with. Mark? Yeah, let's have some fun for just a second with all the serious things we've been dealing with. How about a uh, story that, and I I did some searching just to see how widespread the coverage of this is, and I guess it's pretty widespread because I'm looking at an article that's from the AP that's in a website called theaustralian.com. And so down under, they know about angry birds that are roosting at NASA spaceport. The uh, headline says that they have a new space coop. And at NASA's invitation, the angry birds is going to be roosting at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex for the next one and a half years to lure youngsters to the cosmic wonders of math and science. They've opened a new exhibit. It's uh, near the shuttle launch experience. It's on the way to the Atlantis exhibit that will be opening at the end of June. And it's called the Angry Bird Space Encounter. It's the first of its kind. Uh, This was something that got a plug from astronaut Don Pettit when he was on board the ISS. They did a video that's on YouTube talking about it. And he says that uh, with, with all of these things, talking about hyperbolic trajectories, elliptical trajectories, and even Holman transfer orbits, which is what you do with spacecrafts going from planet A to planet B. All of this stuff can be geek, uber geek, or a super uber geek, as Pettit referred to himself. All of these things can be found from the mind out of the game as an excuse to learn more. But, at parent alert, if a PhD astronaut like Pettit endorses Angry Bird Space, it must be worthwhile. Uh, the reporter that wrote this article talked about uh, being there in the experience of a child who was six-year-old daughter 
who was waiting none too patiently to get inside and when it was time to move on wanted to go back. So this is a fun exhibit. I looked at it, some of the pictures and the way they, what's, what's there. Uh, another thing to put on your central Florida got to do list along with, of course, Atlantis when it opens up later this year. But angry birds are roosting at NASA. How about that? <laughs> well, I'm sure the kids are going to love that. And, again, it's going to be a nice little attraction for uh, for the younger set to go ahead and take a look in there and, and see what exhibits they have with relationship to the game, I guess. Again, if, if, if you can reach, reach little ones by whatever, you know, by whatever methods necessary, if Angry Birds does it, then go for it. And with that silly headline, we have reached the end of this mostly serious episode, actually. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, G. McCulka. Thanks, sir, and uh, happy Passover to everybody celebrating, and joyous Holy Week to also everybody celebrating. And uh, again, everybody happy Easter and happy Passover. Indeed, and thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here as always. See you next time. And thank you to everybody who sent in their listener letters. I should add, if you would like to send in your letters, you can email them to us at mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You can tweet them to us at TalkingSpace or post it on our Facebook wall, which is Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. But, you know, you can always reach us there, and we will be back next week with a new episode. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.